Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Hello, everyone. Major Garrett here with The Takeout, churning out content as I work from home and as we're all working from home, trying to add value to your life and give you as much of our journalism and podcasting exploits as possible and as rapidly as possible. Now, for CBS, on March 25th, I conducted an interview with former vice president and current Democratic presidential frontrunner Joe Biden. want to share that interview with you. We start the interview off talking about how he is doing, whether he's any symptoms or any symptoms in his family, then a long conversation about his evaluation of what this crisis is or isn't, some on President Trump's handling of it, what he would do differently, and then some conversation about Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, his own campaign, the future of the Democratic Convention, presidential primaries yet to be held, and even the big election in November. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Vice President. Uh, first of all, how are you feeling? Has anyone, have you any symptoms, anyone in your family, any symptoms? Has anyone been tested for COVID-19? Thank God, no symptoms. My mother would say, knock on wood. Um, and uh, no one in my family has been tested. Now, Jill and I, Jill, my wife and I are the only two here. Uh, our grandchildren and daughter-in-law are about a mile away. They walk over. We, we're not allowed to hug our grandchildren these days, you know, so they walk over. We sit in the porch and they stand out there and we talk for about a half an hour. They've not been tested. I've talked to my son in California and his wife. They've not. And my, my daughters and my granddaughters. So, so far, so good. When you look at the statistics, Mr. Vice President, do you personally feel in a greater sense of peril? Well, I don't, I don't personally uh, feel in a greater sense of peril but, but I, peril, but I do worry. The one number I keep looking at is that the rate of increase, uh, the rise in the number of cases is going up faster than it was in China at its peak. And what I worry about is that we are not taking all the action we could and should be taking, nor did we take it when we should have started it. And so that's what I'm, they're the numbers I'm looking at every morning with my medical team that I have an hour conference with every morning and then the economic team on telephone. The president suggested, as you well know, Mr. Vice President, yesterday that by Easter the country could be back up and running, or at least he held that out as a hope. A, is it realistic and is there anything risky or dangerous about that rhetoric? Well, look, I, I think he's presenting us the false choice here, this idea that we either get the country up and running or everything collapses, or even though we may lose some lives, someone said. I don't view it that way. I think the way we get the country up and running and keep it running when, once it's up is to deal with the virus. And so I think we have to listen to the science. 
the scientists. That's where we should put in all our emphasis. And I really do think the administration has to move more rapidly than they are on the things that need to be done from using the Defense Production Act in an aggressive way to get these ventilators, to get the mask, by engaging the military on a more ready footing basis to provide hospitals. You know they're going to be needed and additional beds. And the National Guard's doing that up in, up in New York at the Javits Center, I'm told, three different facilities. Um, so I just think we have to, there has to be a greater sense of urgency of doing the things that need to be done to flatten that curve. Everybody's now knows about the curve, flatten that curve so that we get this under control. That's the best way to get the economy under control. Now, I want people to have hope, Major. I want them to have hope, but I don't want to give false hope. The worst, only thing we can do worse than telling the American people the truth is, in fact, raise false hopes. And then when it doesn't occur, they go, oh, my God, what, 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 something really must be worse than I thought it was. In that regard, Mr. Vice President, have the president's daily briefings from your vantage point enhanced or diminished his credibility? Well, that's for other people to decide. I, I, I find that some of the things he says, I just wish he would introduce those briefings and step aside and let Dr. Fauci and the experts speak. Because he said so many things over the past several weeks that are just simply not accurate about access to tests, about when they be available, how many are available, with so on and so forth. I, I just think, I just think this, is, this is about dealing with the problem at hand. It's real. It's going to increase before it gets better. What are we going to do to flatten that curve? What are we doing with in terms of all the medical needs that are available, needed out there? How are we protecting the nurses, the doctors, the first responders? What are we doing to make sure they're going to be okay? Look what's happening now down in Louisiana. You're going to see a spike in there. I've been talking to the governor yesterday. Uh, they're, they're, they, they've got a real problem. You're going to find a new epicenter in Louisiana. And he attributes it, and I think what others do as well, to the, the international gathering on Fat Tuesday, the Mardi Gras piece, that where tens of thousands of people from all over the country and the world appeared. So I just think it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think we have to focus on what's going on now. A thought experiment for you, Mr. Vice President. If you were president okay. today, tell my audience what your checklist would be and the matrix you would ask your advisors to present you so you could tell the country with some confidence when it could reopen. Several things. Number one, I would focus first and foremost on getting more test, testing equipment out there and available as rapidly as I could get it. Secondly, I would provide for the needs that the docs and the hospitals have to protect themselves so they do not end up out of commission because we're going to badly need them and more of them. Thirdly, I'd be focused on how we, in fact, make sure we have enough uh, intensive care units available, not just in the major metropolitan areas, but there are very few of them, for example, out in the rural areas throughout America, even in, in, in the Delmarva Peninsula. We need to provide them with more capacity to deal with life-saving capacity, life-saving things. Thirdly, I'd get the military on the ground in places where they begin to build these 10 hospitals now. 
they're prepared to do them because you know where it's coming in places. You know it's coming down in Louisiana. You know it's coming in other places you see. Every morning I get a brief and you can see where the hot spots are growing. And I would also make sure that we're in a position where we, the economic package that I hope gets passed today, where we can get it out the door quickly. For example, you know, everybody says, well, you know, well, Joe, you, you don't hold office anymore. Well, guess what? Barack, the president and I went through a significant economic downturn that required a great economic infusion of money. I was put in charge of the $900 billion Recovery mm -hmm. Act. I knew that I had to literally, and I, you and I talked about it at the time, I was on the phone literally four or five hours a day with mayors, governors, local officials, laying out exactly how you do it, how you get the money, where you go, accounting for everything on a daily basis. That's going to have to happen now in getting this money out the door for people who are in real need. If, in fact, the, this legislation passes that they agreed to in the Senate, there's going to have to do more. But right now, for example, the most important thing would be to make sure small businesses are able to get that money now, those loans now, and make sure that they understand that everybody they keep on payroll, that is money that need not be paid back. They pay back what they have to pay in order to keep their business up. But if they use the money to keep people employed, that is not part of the debt. I would make sure that everybody knew that the banks were actually getting this money out and getting out quickly. That has not been their strong point. I'm not being critical, but it's a reality. Small business loans are not their small their 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 their, their, their strong point. In addition to that, I would be making sure that there was a daily, I mean, and I'm not joking, a daily accountability by putting a whole team in charge on the economic side, not the Secretary of the Treasury alone, put a whole team in charge watching every day how much of this relief is getting out the door. How's it getting to people? For example, there is this ability for people to be able to go and if they had, if they weren't paying into the unemployment system according to the legislation that's passed, that they will now be able to be covered. How do they do that? What's the mechanical way to get right. that done? Right. Who's going to be talking to each of the unemployment employment offices. All those things are really critical. So to what degree, Mr. Vice President, did you participate in any of the deliberations with Senate Democrats? Do you, would you, if President, sign this legislation? And what is your message to Speaker Pelosi about trying to get the House to approve it via unanimous consent? Well, I'm not going to presume to tell the speaker she's pretty darn good at what she does about approving it by unanimous consent. And I understand the idea of getting back and so on. Uh, but here's what I would do. I would sign the legislation to make it clear it's not enough. We need more funding and more money for state and local governments. We need to be in a position where we're in a circumstance that we're going to have strict, strict oversight of the $500 billion dollars that is going to be going to corporate America. We need to be in a position, in, in, in addition to that, where we see to it, I would be adding to this legislation for debt forgiveness for college loans, up to $10,000. I'd be, I'd be saying we got to go back and do even better than what is occurring now. And so I'd be talking about implementing what was passed, making sure the oversight is absolutely critical as to how it's being implemented, and I'd be talking about whether or not what is going to be required next, because we're going to need a third step here. As you're well aware, Mr. Vice President, the St. Louis Fed chair has suggested national unemployment could reach 30 percent. 
to what degree do you agree with that assessment? And secondarily, how would you describe the magnitude of this particular crisis? I think the magnitude is larger than anything we've ever faced in modern times. I don't know whether it'll reach 30%, but I suspect in the next three, four days, you see the unemployment numbers coming in from around the state. You're going to see it spike dramatically. Now, Claim, whether claims it gets for unemployment insurance. Yes, that's what I meant. That's measuring how many people are unemployed. Yeah. And, uh, um, and so I think you're going to see that <clears throat> spike dramatically. <clears throat> I think it's going to go nothing but up. Excuse me. <clears throat> but I can't tell you whether or not it's going to be 10 million, 20 million, or 30 million. I'm speaking to the economist I'm on, the, on, on calls with, and they think you could get as high as 20 million, um, and it could get higher. But I don't know the answer to that question. But we have to be prepared for it getting that high, and that means we have to have the mechanism in place to distribute this unemployment funding. And that's why we're going to need more help for the states whose offices are going to have to be beefed up considerably to be able to implement the legislation that accounts for people being able to get the unemployment insurance. Hello, folks. This is Major Garrett. You know, one of the great perks of hosting The Takeout is getting to eat the best of what Washington, D.C. has to offer. The restaurant industry, as all of us know, has been a huge supporter of this show and has been hit especially hard by the coronavirus outbreak. And we here at The Takeout want to do what little we can to help those in need. So we invite you, as I have, to make a contribution to the Worker Relief Fund that is being coordinated by the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington. They are collecting money to help offset the losses to furloughed and laid off restaurant workers throughout the D.C. region. Here's their website. It's ramw.org. Again, ramw.org. We can and will post a link on our Twitter page where you can donate. Thanks so very much. Uh, let me ask you a couple of uh practical, very practical political questions. Uh, one, how soon do you think you'll be able to personally have in-person events, campaign events? Second, how confident are you that the remaining primaries will be able to be conducted uh, in a fair and logical and effective way? And do you have any anxiety that the Democratic National Convention may have to be conducted in a fundamentally different way or canceled entirely? Well, number one, uh, uh, as I've talked to my friend John Meacham, we've been able to uh, um, deal with uh, crises and elections at the same time. We voted and had conventions during the Civil War and World War II, et cetera. So I, I, I'm confident we can find a way through that, number one. Number two, with regard to um, well, what do I think about my being able to be out there in front of crowds again, I don't think we're going to be in a position in the near term to change the circumstances with regard to social distancing. I think that's going to be kept in place for a while longer. I would think, I, I, I'm going to listen to the scientists on this and the experts, but my guess is that is, uh, that's a little bit down the road. So I think most of the kind of campaigning that's going to be done is, is the way that uh, I'm doing it online. Number three, I think that we're going to find ourselves in a position that they may be able to continue to conduct elections depending on where in the country or primaries in the country where in fact they think they can require the social distancing and be sure the machines are are literally washed down make sure they're sanitized before everyone walks into that booth next i think that is that's possible i think that's likely i also think that we're in a position where 
we're going to find, we're going to focus a lot more on the kind of legislation that Amy Globuchar has introduced uh, in the Senate for mail-in ballots and be able to do that way. So I think you're going to see more of that as we go forward. Would you be open to mail-in ballots another... for the national election itself, Mr. Vice President? Well, uh, obviously uh, some states it, already do that. I understood. I understood yeah, that. Some, some states already do that. Yes, I would be if it got to that point, if we were if by November it was. But I would not be open to delaying the election. Mm -hmm. Do you think do you have any fear that that might be proposed or suggested? Well, um, I never quite know what uh, what this president will suggest or say. It sounds like it will not be proposed or suggested, I don't think, by uh by any Democrat. Understood. Um, has this crisis in any way, Mr. Vice President, assuming you become the Democratic Party nominee, influenced your decision-making process for a potential running mate? No, not really, uh, because having gone through uh, not the same crisis, but a similar crisis in terms of the economy being on the brink um, and having been through that day to day from the moment we got elected, even before we got elected, the crash started. Um, uh, it has uh, informed me as to the way in which you'd have to fun function as a White House. And I think that it does not in any fundamental way change the very things I would, would have considered anyway for a running mate where I the nominee, I'm assuming I'm the nominee. And is that your working assum assumption, Mr. Vice President, that you will be? Well, let me put it this way. I, I don't want, I never take anything for granted. I think that uh, um, we're in pretty good shape. I think that uh, we're likely to be that nominee. I think that uh, we're going to go into this election with an overwhelming plurality, uh, into this convention with overwhelming plurality. And, uh, but, uh, but again, that depends on um, a lot of things, not the least of which is if Bernie insists on staying in or whether he's going to pull out. That's his decision, not mine. Can you characterize the conversations your campaigns have been having in that regard, Mr. Vice President? Well, there, there, there have not been many we've talked about. Uh, I haven't, uh, but uh, our campaigns have talked about uh, what would uh, um, be what role um, well, I don't think I should go into the detail of it, but there, there, have been, there have been civil conversations about how to proceed from this point and if uh, the, uh, uh, the senator is going to continue. And if he wasn't, what would be satisfying to him in terms of a role he could play um, in the whole process uh, or if he's going to stay in? To what degree would you uh, describe your confidence that this party, when the time comes, will be fully unified? Well, I think it will be. I, uh, I'm, I'm very confident of that. Uh, I've been talking with all the other people who have um, dropped out and or endorsed, and even if one who didn't endorse. I talked to Elizabeth, who's really knows what she's talking about and uh, about the kinds of things we have to do to unite the party. Um, so I, I feel quite confident that we'll be able to have a united party, and regardless of who stays in or out. And has Senator Warren not endorsed because she believes that gives her an ability, possibly a unique one, to bring the party together? I'm not going to characterize why she hadn't. I'd let her speak for, for herself, but we've had good conversations. Understood. I gave you that uh, two-pronged thought experiment, Mr. Vice President, question, and it's probably unfair. So let me go back to the second part of that. If you were in the White House, you would have to develop a matrix, you and your advisors, for letting the country know 
when the corner has been turned. Um, can you give me a sense of how you've thought about that and the kind of advice you would seek and maybe what your matrix or checklist might look like? Well, I can tell you the advice I'd seek. The advice I would seek is from the leading infectious disease people in the nation and the world and look at what other countries have done, what impact they've had, how they have dealt with bending that curve. But I'd listen to the scientists, the docs, the experts. That's where I would focus my attention as I am every single morning with a brief that lasts from a half an hour to an hour and a half every single morning since this crisis began on the telephone in this case, number one. Number two, I would make sure that we're in a position that we were prepared to act as rapidly as needed for whatever the experts said were needed in order to be able to deal with the actual virus. And number two, I would make sure I had a full-blown team ready to implement all of the legislative availability I have to deal with economic growth, economic recovery, economic stability. And that would be an entire team, like the one the president asked me to set up relating to, President Obama, relating to um, dealing with the Recovery Act. But I would be doing what we did then, every single solitary morning. We had a meeting in the White House with the, with the economic team, uh, that we didn't have, a, we were not dealing at the moment, uh, at, at the same moment with the, uh, with the virus in Africa, with uh, Ebola. But I would make sure there was every single day we were getting, uh, the president was getting a full detailed report on all aspects of the economic side of the problem and the problem as it related to the actual disease. And, uh, and I would constantly keep the, 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 the public informed. And I am confident, I'm confident we have the capacity, we have the scientists, we have the experts, we have the folks who can handle this. We'll be able to handle this, but you have to do it in a way that is rational and based on the science, and we have to do it in a way that we're accountable for every single penny we ask the Congress to appropriate to deal with the economic side of the equation and keep you, the press, and the public informed of the detail. Mr. Vice President, it's been a pleasure. We'll see you again soon, I hope. <laughs> Thanks, Major. Appreciate it a lot. Hope you enjoyed that. Thanks so much for joining us. As I promised earlier this week, we're going to continue to put out as much content as we can to serve you, the audience, and maybe have a little fun along the way. Talk to you next time. I'm Major Garrett. See you. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.